This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzay Torah, in uh, the summer's man. Starting uh, now after Pesach, we'll be having a series of shiurim by Harav Moshe Tarigan on Pekei Avot, to complement, hopefully, your own learning of Pekei Avot each week, a different parak, one Mishnah, one idea, from each parak keeping up with the general learning. Harav Moshe Tarigan. In the middle of the ninth Mishnah of the sixth parak of Avos, the Mishnah cites an interesting story about one of the Tanaim who isn't really featured that prominently throughout Mishnayos, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma was a Rebbe of Rabbi Hanania ben Trajon, probably the most famous um, um, association. And he relates the following story. Again, all the Mishnayos in the sixth parak of Perkyavos describe the the value, the beauty of Torah study, and this is no different. Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma said, "Pam achas ha'isi mahalech maderech, upaga bi adam echad v'nasan lishalom v'chzarti loshalom." Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma mentions that he was once traveling on the road. There were actually. Some Mepharshim of this Mishnah will explain that this was Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma's only trip, that he was so dedicated to Torah study, as is evidenced by his interaction or, or the uh, give and take with this person. That Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma was reflecting upon the very, very infrequent moment that he actually did travel and he actually did depart from the base of Medrash. Um, sounds like there was something... Unexpected about this encounter. It, uh, many of Chazal um, took pride in the fact that when they met people on the street, they would initiate the greeting, they would initiate a welcome. And somehow, in this story, the person which Yossi ben Kisma meets or encounters initiates the conversation. Was um, Yossi ben Kisma engrossed in thought? was traveling, again, not something he was accustomed to, and therefore um, he didn't, maybe, wasn't comfortable, or or um, wasn't part of his regular routine to greet people. That he was, But it seems like, somehow, this person greeted him first. V'chzarti lo shalom, and V'yosi ben Kisma responded, and answered, and, and reciprocated. But the gist of the conversation was as follows. The um, chance person with whom Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma rendezvoused, inquired where Rabbi Yossi was from, and Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma answered that he hailed from a city of Talmidei Chachamim, of Sofrim, of Torah scholars. And at this point, the um, other person offered Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma to come live with them, to, to relocate, and to live in this other city, and he would pay Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma a small fortune. Thousands and thousands of gold coins. And precious stones and gems. And Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma's response was as follows. He's retelling the story, but his response at the moment was, Even if you'd offer me all the money in the world, I would never forfeit the opportunity to live in an environment saturated in Torah study. And therefore, Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma rejected the offer.
preferring instead to remain in his own town of Torah study or Torah scholarship rather than relocate to this town that had offered him such a high salary. And as such, this Mishnah is consistent with the overall spirit of the sixth parak of Avos, Midrashim, statements of Chazal, stories, all of which extol the, the primacy of Torah study. The Yossi ibn Kisma was so committed to Torah study that he rarely traveled. This seems like Pamachas. At one point he may have been traveling. But more importantly, during this journey, he rejected, he rebuffed an incredible offer to relocate and teach Torah while he was relocating, while he was being offered a an exorbitant or a very, very, very high degree of remuneration. Now, what's interesting about the story, and it's a question that's a little bit uh, troubling, is why didn't Jabiosi ibn Kisma accept the offer? After all, the person whom he met was not offering him money for naught or for some evil purpose or to waste his time, but presumably he was offering Jabiosi ibn Kisma a chance to spread Torah, to teach Torah, to um, proselytize, to convert people, to improve their religious, uh, to serve as some sort of rabbinic figure. And on top of it, he was offering him a high salary. So there's some Mepharshim who try to answer and resolve this question that already at this point, Rabbi Yosef and Kisma recognized the insincerity of this offer. It was just a lure to try to test or to sway if you ask Ibn Kismet's commitment or legendary commitment to Talmud Torah. Perhaps if you ask Ibn Kisma suspected, if you ask Ibn Kisma was very close with the Roman authorities. When he died, there were great eulogies conducted for him in Rome. Perhaps he was worried that this journal, this um, person's interest in Yosef Ibn Kisma was not as a religious figure, but for political gains, for political advances. And therefore, he rejected the offer because he sensed that this was uh, there were ulterior motives at play. Perhaps Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma sensed that this was an unworthy offer because the person that lodged the offer himself was of dubious character. I mentioned before that for some reason, and it's recorded in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma didn't initiate a greeting to this person. And uh, typically, we would expect Chazal to be forthcoming, to be very generous, to be the initiators of greetings. Is this further indication that Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma had reason to suspect this person, perhaps with the people that this person associated with, or he was able to discern some other fashion, the ulterior motives at play? Of course, once this person greeted Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma, then Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma had no choice but to respond, to reciprocate, to embrace, and they fell into this conversation. But one approach to understanding the story is that indeed um, Rabbi Yosei Kisner was able to sense the impure motives. But as interesting as this possibility or this speculation is, it's really just that. It's really speculations. Very little of anything in the text of the Mishnah to support this contention that Rabbi Yosei Kisma sensed uh, a troublemaker or a, a uh, insincere request. I think the more... Um, the more natural way to read the Mishnah is that this was a very, very sincere request. But there are simply two different worldviews on display. And Abiyasib and Kisna is voicing one very 
harsh, strident, unequivocal, but still valid and and applicable worldview. And even in the opportunity, facing the specter with the opportunity, the potential to spread Torah to others, that will ultimately dilute the person's Torah level, his Torah intensity, and that may not be the right option or the right choice for everyone. Very often in our world, we trumpet Tikkun HaOlam, Kirov, Limur HaChairim, teaching other people as the highest ideal to which a person should strive, even at the cost to one's own Torah, one's own Torah study or the level of one's Torah study. And certainly in our communities, this has a very, very powerful compulsion. But there's an equal alternate view that says that the more Torah which is learned, the greater presence of HaKadosh Baruch is felt. And that if that departure to the world of Kirov, to the world of Torah production, will lead to Torah diminishing, even within a solitary equation of a person's inner or individual life, maybe that isn't um, recommended, maybe it isn't justified, maybe it isn't justified for everyone. And Yasi bin Kisna was expressing justice. He said, um, I, I realize that I can, in theory, have great impact, have great salutary impact upon your community and teach Torah, but my own Torah will suffer, and I have to worry about that level, both the caliber of it and the intensity, the commitment level. And Abiyasi Ben Kisma felt validated or justified in rejecting the offer, not because he sensed insincere motives. He realized it was a sincere opportunity. He just prioritized the purity of his own Torah study. And sometimes we overlook that option as a valid alternative. Um, what's interesting about it is, is how this plays into Yosef and Kisma's overall, overall position or overall perspective on life in general. The Pasuk he quotes, he actually quotes three Pesukim, and I hope to describe the difference between the three Pesukim he quotes to reinforce the primacy of terror study. But the first Pasuk he quotes is from Mishlei, and um, it's a Pasuk, uh, Mishlei Perikvav, which we recite when we perform a siyum. Which literally translates as, when you walk, when you walk, it will lead you, Torah. The entire context of that section initially describes Torah, Musar Avicha, Torah when you go and lie down, it will guard you, won't just lead you, it will guard you. So when you reawaken, it should be the subject of your conversation, of your discourse. So again, the literal reading of this Pasuk, it sounds very much like the first section of Kriyashma. The same words, and there's no question that this Pasuk is a playoff of that Pasuk in Veschanan. When you walk, when you lie down, when you wake up, and it creates Torah as a time envelope. Wherever and whenever a person lives, he should be surrounded by Torah. But Yosef ibn Kisma had a very different reading. When you walk, it will lead you. That refers to the first stage of a person's experience, this world. When you lie down, it will protect you. It doesn't mean when you lie down at night, but when you are in the stage of death. 
And when you awaken, it will be your discourse, your conversation, Leolam Haba. And Nabi Yossi ibn Kisma is establishing the eternity of Torah. That after the world we currently occupy fades, and everything we know no longer exists. No physicality, no food, no mitzvahs. Nothing in our world exists in the next world. One thing is eternal. One thing does carry over from one world to another, and that's the Talmud Torah, the Torah we study. Torah is eternal. Torah isn't bounded or limited, anchored solely to this world. Torah had preceded our world by 2,000 years. Very interesting Gemara Moed Katan, where um, I think it was Ravashi, meets the Malachamavis, Ravashi or Bechia meets the Malachamavis in the Shuk, in the marketplace, and the Malachamavis informs him that he has come to take him up to Shemayim, and I think it's either Ravashi or Bechia says, I need another month because I must chazer my learning, to chazer all my Torah, because we know that when you enter the gates of Shemayim, they announce, Ashrei Mishabalakan v'tamudo biyado. Fortunate is a man that walks through the gates of heaven with his learning intact, presumably, not just because it speaks to his accomplishments, but because it's relevant to the next world in a way that mitzvahs even and chesed may not be relevant. In a perfect world, there's no room for chesed, no need for chesed. But Torah is something which is eternal and spans both realities. So, Rabbi Yossi Ibn Kisim is clearly, he's not just evaluating the importance of Torah and prioritizing it to money, but he's suggesting the money is ephemeral and, and transient, whereas Torah is eternal and it outlasts life and it outlasts this realm. It applies to all three stages, life, death, and afterlife. It's interesting that this perspective inhered within a person who um, was so involved in the Russian, the Roman political sphere and a very interesting interaction between himself and his Talmud. The Gemara Navodazara, when Yerchasim and Aleph describes Rabbi Hananya ben Trajon, the student of Rabbi Yassi ben Kisma, visiting his Rebbe when his Rebbe was ill. So his Rebbe turns to him and he questions. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma questions Rabbi Hananya ben Trajon's defiance. We normally um, lionize or celebrate Rabbi Hananya ben Trajon. He taught Torah in public even after the Romans had banned it. He refused to buckle. He refused to succumb to the Roman discrimination. And for this, he was severely, severely executed. They wrapped him in a Sefer Torah, they burned him alive, and they put wet sponges or wet cotton on his chest so that the flame should not take quickly to his body. Very famous story. We recite both on Tisha B'Av and on Yom Kippur. But here's the preface, or the prequel, to the story. In Avodazar Yudchas, when Rabbi Hanani ben Trajan visits his Rebbe, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, when the latter Rabbi Yossi is ill, so Rabbi Yossi inquires, he says, I've heard that you are defying the Roman legislation. Don't you know that evidently there is divine um, validation because they've been so successful? Despite all of their infractions and all of their aggression towards the Jewish people in the base of English, they're still enduring. So evidently there's some divine providence on their side. And he urged his Talmud, Rabbi Hanani ben Trajan, to cease, to desist from defying Roman instruction and to desist from teaching Torah. So what happens? Um, Rabbi Hanani ben Trajan 
responds, Amar lo min I can teach Torah and I can trust that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will have pity on me. And this agitates Rabbi Yossi ben Kisbar. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisbar says, Ani umel lecha devram shaltam, I'm speaking with you rationally. And you're claiming the right to act irrationally and dangerously, perilously, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu will protect you. So Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma then says, in a moment of foreshadowing or you know, presage, he says, I'll be surprised if they don't ultimately burn you in a Sefer Torah. And, and this is what happened. What ultimately happened to Rabbi Yochanan ibn Trajan, tragically, is that he was burnt with the Sefer Torah, and his Rebbe, Rabbi Yossi ibn Kisma's prediction, ultimately came true, ultimately was actualized. But aside from the prescience and the ability to to foresee this conclusion, there are two different worldviews on display in this discussion between Rebbe and Talmud. One, which is, we could call politically pacifist, accepting the Roman rule, not celebrating it, not seeing it as eternal or messianic, but just recognizing that they have their moment of glory, their moment of divinely assisted success, and a Jew shouldn't necessarily challenge that. Yaakov, when he meets Esav, acknowledges Esav's role, tries to pacify Esav's role. The Chazal, when they would visit Rome for these very, very charged interactions and dialogues, would always read Parshas Vayishlach to train themselves train themselves for a uh, versatile, a multi-layered response, not just pacifist, but also, of course, um, arming themselves in whatever way they could, defending themselves, to create a blended and um, multi-contoured response, the same way Yaakov did to Esav. But Rabbi Yosef and Kisma is advocating at least an acceptance of Roman authority and adherence to their rules and, and guidelines as strict and as pers- as discriminatory as they may sound it is dangerous to the future of Torah and he chides and he doesn't um, retreat from his admonishing his Talmud and he warns him that this is going to end up in a very very terrible tragedy and ultimately that tragedy is realized so ironically Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma's position about the eternity of Torah a position which he staked in our Mishnah, a position which he offered to this uh, person he met on the road, this fellow journeyman, coincided with Inri ben Kisma in a very strange acceptance of Roman authority and, and the Roman suppression of Torah study. On the surface, it would seem to be incongruous. If he loved Torah and valued Torah so much, then why wasn't he as zealous why wasn't he as um, fearless as his Talmud? But on a second glance, there may be a consistency. By recognizing the eternity of Torah, that Torah is something which outlasts history, which outlasts the human sphere. Torah will, will um, extend even to death and even to afterlife. That could, in theory, create a pacifism or an acceptance of certain harsh realities in this world because extending Torah and eternalizing Torah makes obviously Torah more important but if there are vicissitudes and exigencies which limit its study in this world it's not the same death 
no, it's not the, it's not the same death toll or, or, or lethal um, rejection of Torah, because Torah will exist far beyond this world, and even if in this world God temporarily empowers the Romans to persecute the Jews and to withhold Torah study from them, that doesn't signal the end of Torah, or the demise of Torah. It's just a temporary stay in a temporary world, which is only part of the lifetime or the timeline of Torah. So, quite possibly, if Yossi ibn Kisma's statement about the eternity of Torah and his position vis-à-vis his Talmud, and Bechanan ibn Trajan in opposition to his Talmud, may indeed be two very consistent positions. Anyway, getting back to his response to this journeyman, he quoted three psukim in his response. The first pasuk, as I mentioned earlier, is a pasuk from Mishlei. It describes the eternal nature, not just the value or the importance of Torah, but the eternal nature of Torah, by itemizing three different stages in which Torah remains. Interesting, when Yossi ben Kisma introduced this pasuk, he didn't limit it only to Torah. He mentions, El Torah umaisin tovim bilvad. I would not accept your offer of precious stones and gems. I would rather reside in a location of Torah and Maisim Tovim. And even though he quotes the Pasuk from Mishle, which is nestled within a discussion of Torah, evidently it's something which applies to Maisim Tovim as well, to proper and virtuous deeds. The second Pasuk, though, that he quotes is the Pasuk from Tehillim, Kufiotes, famous parak of 176 Pesukim, of eight Pesukim for each letter. V'neamar, V'chein kasuv b'sefer Tehillim ma'idei David melech Yisrael, tov li taras picha, so first of all, there's a shift from Torah Maisim Tovim, which Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma viewed as resident within this Pasuk in Mishlei, to a pure Torah statement. Tovli Torah Spicha, that's how you refer to Maisim Tovim, it refers to Talmud Torah. Um, here, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma doesn't address the eternity of Torah, rather the value of Torah. Tovli Torah Spicha, David HaMelech speaks to Hashem and informs Hashem that Torah is so valuable, so cherished that it's greater than gold and silver. So there's a slight difference in each Pasuk and presumably Yossi ben Kisma quoted each Pasuk in response to this request or this um, solicitation. One Pasuk describing the eternity, one Pasuk just describing the greater value. The final Pasuk is also interesting, which either, again, it's hard to know whether Yosem and Kisma actually quoted all three Pesukim in response to this offer, or he only said one Pasuk, and then when the Mishnah recited it, when Abidah Nasi put the Mishnah together, redacted the Mishnah, he added some Pesukim, or he added some Pesukim that others had suggested. But the final Pasuk is taken from Chagai, Paragabes, the Omer, Liha Kesef, the Liha Zav, Noam Hashem Tzavakos. Now, typically, this is a Pasuk describing, as it is in Chagai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, asserting his ownership over the monies of our world. And that assertion affects either, or perhaps both, at a personal level. A person should recognize the source of funds, the source of all gold and silver in our world. And more so, and really in the context 
of Chagai at a national level. If you take a look in Chagai, Parak Beis, it's not just describing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's ownership over the gold and silver, but rather the directing of gold and silver to the Beis HaMikdash. Because, ultimately, when the Beis HaMikdash is built, the Pasuk, um, Od Ma'at, Od Achas Ma'at, it's in the beginning of Parak Beis, Ani Marishat HaShemayim V'sa'arts V'sayam V'sechner Avash, and will make loud noises in the cosmos, in the universe, V'rashti Eskol HaGoyim, and I will create noise, I will shake up all the nations of our world, Uvochem Das Kol and their desirable items will come, Umi Leisiyas Abayis Ezek Avod, and my house will be filled with glory, Amar Hashem, Tzavakos, Lihakasef, it's not just at a personal level that a person individualistically should realize the source of his wealth, of his affluence, but at a national historical level that with the redemption of mankind and the re-centralizing of Yushalayim and Beis HaMikdash as the center point for religious expression or religious delivery, Yushalayim will also become a wealthy center, a hub where riches and affluence from the entire world will be funneled towards because those riches are HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so obviously they'll be invested in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's backyard, so to speak. So these are the classic applications of this Pasuk. Um, and, and there are various Gemaras that suggest that. The Gemara in Avodah Zarah, Beis Amad Beis. Where it describes a discussion between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the... Um, and the nations of the world, the Asad Lavo, Shem asks them, what were you involved in? And they said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we built streets, and we built roadways, and we built shopping malls, and we did them for the Jews. They should be able to learn properly. So Hashem says, you fools, I know that you did it for your personal needs, uh, streets to house uh, zonos, and, and prostitutes, and bathhouses, in order to enjoy and the money's really mine. So I gave it to you, and you didn't invest them wisely. You invested them in self-interest. So in Avodah Zarah, that base of base, this pasuk liyakesef v'hazav is cited in very um, in very national historical terms as part of a conversation between Hakadosh Baruch Hu and the nations of the world. In the end of days questioning their use and their abuse of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wealth, the wealth that HaKadosh Baruch Hu extended to them. The Gemara Nida on Dafayin, Amit Beis, employs this in a slightly different, this Pasuk in a slightly different, this is more of an individual application. The Gemara inquires, Adam What should a person do to become wealthy? So the Gemara says, Amar lehem should invest wisely v'yisavitim b'muna. So um, the Gemara responds, "Amrulah harbe asu kein ilu." Many people invested and weren't successful. Ela yivakesh rachamim yishud daven tashem, yishud osher shalo, because God controls all finances. Shenamar liyakasef v'liyazav. Hashem controls all financial dealings and all financial shifts. So whether it's the personal application of nida dafayin or the national historical sense of Avodah Zarah, Daf Beis, either Pasuk stresses HaKadosh Baruch Hu's control, Hashem is the source of money. Why exactly did Rabbi Yossi ibn Kismuk cite this Pasuk in response to the offer? Rabbi Yossi ibn Kismuk wasn't, uh, was he saying that, 
with even if I stay in the house of Torah, I mean the first two statements of Yosef and Kisner were saying, look, I, I realize that you're offering me money and I may not receive that money by remaining in my hometown where people are committed to Torah study, but Torah study is more eternal as opposed to money which abandons a person after death. Or Torah study is more valuable. Was Rabbi Yosef and Kisma basically saying, well, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in control of the monetary flow, it will flow, it will be directed to his choice independent of human effort. And in acknowledgement of uh, Torah's centrality. So just like in Chagai, Perak Beis, the, the wealth ends up being funneled to the base of Mikdash, the house of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Similarly, I can be assured that that money will end up as mine anyway, will funnel it to the site of Torah, to the location of Torah. In which case, Abiyasi ibn Kisma was offering a three-pronged response. First of all, Torah may not be more valuable, so to speak, in theory, but it's just more eternal, and it'd be wise to invest in something long-lasting, even if it may not pack the same punch as it were in the immediate sense. Second part of Abiyasi ibn Kisma's response was that even in the immediate sense, Torah is more valuable than riches, and I'd be willing to invest in Torah study even at the expense of riches and wealth. The third part of Abiyasi ibn Kisma's response is, I can be assured that the wealth will ultimately trickle and and be funneled to the site of Torah, Allah the Pasuk in Chagai, Paragabes, Liha Kesef, Veliha Zav, which doesn't just assert the ownership of HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the affluence in our world, but also that ownership affecting the distribution and allocation of wealth in our world, as is clearly on display in Chagai Perak Beis, that the wealth ends up in Yushalayim, as the the Bais of Hashem, not just in the empires that had generated such wealth, or the people that had invested on behalf of that wealth. So it's a very interesting Mishnah, very interesting story of Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, and again, why he chose not to or not to accept this offer, not just for the riches that were involved, but even for going an opportunity to share Torah with others in order to preserve and to protect the caliber and the quality of his own Torah.